Our New Testament reading this morning will be from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So if you'll open there with me, we'll read that in just a moment. This chapter is all about leading a life pleasing to God, walking the walk, leading the life, a life full of spiritual growth, a life that is marked by that ever-increasing obedience to God's revealed will. In the first three verses, which we'll be looking at today, well, two and a half, we get a general call to walk according to the instructions that Paul gave them. He reviews his standard teachings throughout all of his epistles, so we know the kind of things that he's been teaching. He taught, really, the whole counsel of God from beginning to end. He claimed to the Ephesian elders, as he was on his way to Jerusalem expecting to be arrested, that he said, I testify that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Uh, these first two and a half verses we're talking about sanctification, and it's really sanctification in light of the entire counsel of God. In verse 3 through 6, he continues on to where the believers really struggle the most and don't walk pleasing to God, and that's sexual immorality, as much of a problem as it was in his day as it is today, really. And and it will always be until he returns. In verse 7 to 8, he broadens things back again to full impurity versus holiness, all kinds of impurity. And then he turns to brotherly love and leading a quiet life in 9 through 12. And he concludes the chapter uh, speaking of the return of the Lord and the promise of that as the encouragement to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. And he continues that eschatology in the next chapter. Uh, Today, though, we'll only get to the first three verses, but we'll read the whole chapter to put it in perspective for us. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God for your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need of anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we have instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders 
and be dependent on no one. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that the Lord Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him all those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray for encouragement to our hearts through those words as we consider our personal holiness and our walk with you, a walk pleasing to you. And we consider the reward for that is promised in eternity when your son returns. And pray that that would be an encouragement to us as we consider this matter today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, in verse 1 he really introduces the subject matter that he's writing them about. Walk pleasing to the Lord, to God. Now this is the Apostle Paul and his ministry team asking, really formally urging, or might even be better to say exhorting them, because that's what the Greek word means, exhorting them to walk in a manner that is pleasing to God. As their pastor, their teacher, their church planter, this is the first and most important thing he exhorts new believers to in this letter. You must walk worthy of your calling, worthy of your salvation, worthy of your God. You can't just talk. You've got to walk the walk. Many places in Scripture speak about this obligation of all professing Christians to walk, to live in a manner worthy of God. It's really a major theme in the New Testament. And as we saw in the Old Testament, if you don't walk worthy of God, there are consequences for you. As Israel did not walk worthy of God, there were consequences for their whole nation. And we read about them throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. This is not just a one-time deal either. This is a lifelong work of the believer to improve our walk as we go through our life. Paul wrote that, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, to which you have been called. And then he tells us how, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Note that love and maintaining unity and peace, that's all part of our walk worthy of the Lord. That's an important 
matter to God that he has said this. And we see that over and over again in our in our studies. What then is the calling? Paul continues to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The next two verses. Our calling is referring to our being saved. We need to walk worthy of the salvation that we have. And that salvation came to us through the gospel. We became adoption of sons, received the adoption of sons of God, from God. And so Paul exhorts us in another place, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, again, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. It is, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction and to you of your salvation and that from God. Our walking a manner worthy of the gospel is the evidence to us that we really have been saved. If our life has not been transformed, then how can we think that we are saved? That transformation should bear fruit. Since he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transformed us, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, Colossians 1, 13 and 14. We ought now to live in his kingdom, for his kingdom, for him. At one time we were in darkness, but now we are in light. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Ephesians 5, 8 through 11. We are called upon to live a new life in Christ. A life out of the darkness into the light. That was one of John's great themes in 1 John. He says, this is... The message we heard from him and proclaimed to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of his son, Jesus, cleanses us from all our sin. 1 John 1, 5 through 7. And because of this, we are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, Colossians 1.10. Note the bearing fruit requires that increasing in the knowledge of God. And since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy, 1 Peter 15 and 16. 1 Peter 1.15 and 16. Now, this this truth, this need to walk in a manner worthy of him requires us to understand him and to know him. This truth is also taught in the Westminster Standards. What is man's purpose? Why am I here? Why do I exist? People ask that question. God answers, and the Westminster Standards answer it for us as well. 
Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. As Paul says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever, Romans 11.36. And he exhorts the Corinthians, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. That's our purpose. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but of the many that they may be saved. We'll come back to that last part later when we get down to verse 12 about not offending. But suffice it to say for now, living without offending, without stumbling, other than the cross, stumbling them by the cross, the offense of the cross, that's really part of our walking in a manner pleasing to God, worthy of God and worthy of the gospel and the calling that we have. We are called by Paul to walk to please God by walking in accordance with the teachings that he has given them through the Holy Spirit, through the Lord. Walk as you have received from us, he says there in verse 1. Paul has already praised them for receiving his doctrine, the doctrines of his ministry team that was with him. He says, and we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but as it truly is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. That was back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. His exhortation here that we see in the beginning of chapter 4 is not just the opinion of some wise man, some successful philosopher, as they are used to listening to in their society. He says it is the word of God, not men. And they received it that way. Paul wrote to Corinthians that we impart this, this, the, the truths of God in words not taught by man's wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual things to those who are spiritual. You know, Paul, in all of his teaching, was not giving them his wisdom, his ideas. He wasn't interpreting things for them. He didn't go to men for the wisdom. I remember once going to a church as a visitor, the pastor read a passage of the Bible, he closed it, he put it away, and he started to quote secular psychiatrists who proved that the Word of God was pretty good. Uh, no. The authority is not the wisdom of the wise men of our age. The authority of Scripture is God and the Spirit. And that's why we are called to walk according to the things that he has taught. Those in the flesh just can't understand these things. But we, you, Paul says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of God does not belong to him, Romans 8, 9. You know, if we have been transformed by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is in us, the things of the Lord will be understood to have come from him, not from men. Many today in the church make the mistake of saying, Oh, this is provincial, this is old-fashioned, this is obsolete. You know, our society, our knowledge, our understanding has evolved, and we're better. No, we're never better than God. And by receiving this as the Word of God, 
it can really transform our lives. But that requires we have the Spirit. Those who do not have the Spirit just do not understand these things. Since he's writing to believers who've been given the Holy Spirit, they can and will listen to and understand the things from the Word of God. Remember what we learned back in 1 John concerning the heretical teachers who were trying to deceive them? He says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you, the Holy Spirit, is greater than he who is in the world, the devil. They are from the world, and they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We, however, are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. 1 John 4, 4 through 6. They, the world will not accept the Bible, will not accept the things of the Bible. It will interpret them differently. It will interpret them in light of the corruption of their hearts, in light of the revelations, so-called, of Satan. They don't accept. And Paul is saying, but you did. And that is one of the evidences that you are walking with God, that you have his spirit. And if you have his spirit, walk according to these things you know come from God. And this walk, this perfection in our walk, is not something that comes immediately or even in this life. You know, we read many passages about we have been justified. We are declared righteous before God. And we understand those passages we're talking about at the judgment. When God opens a book and he has, you know, this one is not big enough, but he has a list of all my sins, um, Christ will say, it is covered by the blood. And I am innocent. I am righteous because it's been paid in full. And I know it's been paid in full because when Jesus was raised from the dead, death had no more power over him. Death is the wages of sin. Therefore, sin had been fully paid for. And I have that hope and that confidence in the day of the Lord. What we're talking about here is sanctification, the practice of righteousness. I am saved by a foreign, by an alien righteousness, the righteousness of Christ but I'm still called upon to be righteous, to be holy as he is holy. And, you know, I was very unholy as an unbeliever, and I'm hoping I'm getting better as I'm a believer, but I was not made perfect in righteousness. Anybody who knows me can probably point out a few faults, a few sins, a few shortcomings, where I have failed to come to the glory of God. So our sanctification is something that must grow. And we see this in Scripture. Here, especially, he says he wants us to do so more and more in verse 1. That is the growth in our walk, to grow in our pleasing God. Of course, you might ask, what is it to please God? Is it whatever pleases me pleases God? Because God wants me to be happy? No, even the best of believers... A little of the old man remains. The closer we are to God, the more we realize this and will cry out like Paul did. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Romans 7, 24. He wanted to do right, but the wrong was right there in him, and he often did the wrong that he did not want instead of the right that he wanted. And so we cry out like that because... Our hearts are leading us astray. Our desires are leading us astray. 
Jeremiah, remember, said the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately or incurably sick. Who can understand it? God. That was Jeremiah 17.9. We know that if we follow our hearts, we'll be led into sin, led astray into sin. That's why he's warned us to trust in the Lord with all your heart and not lean on your own understanding. But in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes, thinking that you know right and wrong apart from God. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. Proverbs 3, 5 through 7. The believer knows the only place we're ever going to get the truth for how to please God is from his word. We find it in God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. It has everything we need. Because all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. We know what is right from his word, but our habits are often what is wrong. Our life before, the, even the desires in our heart are still corrupted by the old man and by the wickedness of this world. And we want to break those old habits, to live our life more and more for the glory of God. And for that, we need that training in righteousness that comes from the word. As Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, John 17, 17. So first, our sanctification, that is our growth in holiness, our walk pleasing to God more and more, it begins with growing in the knowledge of God. Growth in our knowledge of God is what pleases him, and our knowledge of what pleases him needs to come from the word. When we try to take it from our own heart and not from our study of the word, we don't please God, we please ourselves and our sinfulness. So that's first and foremost what's needed. We need to be filled with the knowledge of his will. As Paul says in, first, in Colossians 1, 9, and 10. So from the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, to be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That knowledge and increasing in knowledge is what helps us to be able to please him more and to produce more good fruit. We need to know God, and we need to know what God wants. And what he wants is the opposite of what sinful man wants, usually, almost always. And we need that knowledge. We cannot find it in ourselves apart from God's word. God has given us his word to provide that to us. So to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, we must be filled with the knowledge of his will. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away by the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Stability. But grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in grace and knowledge. 
That's very important. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This knowledge must be growing, which makes sense. We've studied the scriptures for a whole lifetime, and there are still things we can learn from it, still things we didn't know, still applications we didn't understand. Every time I preach on a passage, it's something I've read many times. I may have even taught on it before. I've prayed about it. I've meditated. I've studied it. I learn new things each time. I learn more when I write a sermon probably than anywhere else. Because God blesses the work of preparing messages, especially because of the effect they have on God's people. You never come to perfect, complete knowledge of God. It's one of those things that really needs to be growing. Deeper insights, deeper understandings come from the fruit of our study, from the the preparation of our worship. Spiritual growth in the believer and in the churches is very critical in the New Testament. It was something so strongly desired by Paul that he led him to be able to do more and more for them. He was enabled to do more for them if they would just grow a little. In 2 Corinthians 10.15, he says, We boast beyond limit. We do not boast beyond limit in the labor of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be enlarged. When through the ministry of the word, their faith grew, Paul was able to do more. If they only had a little faith and a little understanding, they were easily distracted by the godless attacks on the church and on the Bible's teaching and on Paul because he was a representative of God as the pastor and the apostle. And they, he was concerned that they grow so that he could have greater impact for the scripture and less distraction from the godless. And he says in Second Thessalonians 1.3, We ought to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So in his second letter to the Thessalonians, he is grateful, and he always was grateful to see the growth of God's people, that they might produce more fruit, and they might desire God more earnestly, and that he then might have a place to minister to them in knowing God more fully. Fully. Note that with the growth in faith comes the growth in love. Faith in Jesus naturally leads to loving those who belong to him. Remember, that was a lesson in First John. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. First John 5, 1-3, you remember all that interconnection. Faith, love, obedience, they're all wrapped together, and they all need to be growing in us. And that growth was an encouragement to Paul and to everyone, that intimate link of brotherly love and faith especially means that if you lack faith or you lack obedience, then or you, 
If you lack brotherly love and you lack obedience to God's law, then you must lack faith. Your faith, your claim of faith should be called into doubt. Paul says, it is my prayer that you love, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Again, love is not love the way the world loves. It is love the way God wants us to love, and that knowledge comes through, and discernment comes through the word. It says, so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Common theme in Paul, our life in this world is not about the here and now. It's about doing in the here and now what pleases God so that our life in eternity will be rewarded and blessed. He wants us to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with fruit, the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Philippians 1, 9 through 11. Paul encouraged them to abound more and more in knowledge and discernment and love. That was his prayer for the churches. And to the Thessalonians, we, wrote, we read in 1 Thessalonians 3.12 that the Lord, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. That was his prayer for them. And for everyone, as, you, as we do for you. God, Paul wanted them to love God, to love one another, to love the brethren, and to grow in that as a church. Now in verse 2, he moves on from encouraging us to our sanctification to reminding us where the source of our sanctification is, where the strength and power come from. And our sanctification... Our growth in faith, our growth in love, our growth in knowledge of God and of what he wants really comes to the ministry of the word and to those appointed to the task. Remember, he said, God gave apostles and prophets and evangelists, shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, building up the body of Christ until we all attain unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the, by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by the craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way to him who is the head, to Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint in which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow and build itself up in love. We see a number of important things here. This sanctification is the work of the Word of God, and the work of the Word of God is carried out primarily through the preaching and teaching of those appointed by God. We want to grow up in every part of our Christian life and encourage one another. That encouragement comes through the ministry of the Word primarily, but Hebrews gives us another place where it comes from. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting the meeting together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day draw near, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. It's the work not just of 
the pastor, the teacher who writes the book, who preaches the sermon, who you hear on the radio or see on TV, but it's the face-to-face work of the ministers and the brothers and sisters in Christ to help each other grow up in our faith and stir us up to greater good works. And to grow up in every way we should like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk that you may grow up in our salvation. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good, First Peter 2, 2 and 3. The milk of God's word is what helps us to grow up in our faith and in all things, which is why Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We need that truth to grow up in our faith. And to grow up in our faith means that we grow up in our love for one another, for the brothers and sisters in Christ, and that we grow up in our obedience, that we become more obedient to the things of the Lord. Notice Paul says back in verse 1 that he's telling us how we ought to walk. This isn't a simple suggestion. This is an important necessity for us. We don't really engage in this work of sanctification by ourselves, because if we do only by ourselves without the Holy Spirit, our heart's never really going to grow purer and purer. We need the Holy Spirit in us, which is why he wrote to Timothy, you, O man of God, flee these things. All the godly pursuits or ungodly pursuits listed in the first half of that chapter Flee those things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. You know, this isn't let go and let God. This is a battle for our fighting. But we fight it, yes, with the power of the Holy Spirit. But if we don't do the work... It's not going to happen. I remember you know, hearing people say, well, I'm, I'm praying about that and waiting for God to help me overcome that as an excuse for doing nothing to overcome sin. That's not how it works. It's a fight. It's a race. And if we want to be transformed, we need to take that seriously. Because Paul is telling us this is how you ought to walk. It's not a suggestion, but a necessity. Uh, Thayer's Dictionary lists the primary reading of that word ought to as necessity lying in the nature of the case. In other words, if we've been born again, John 3 talks about that, or if we've been transformed by the renewing of our mind, Romans 12, 2, if what God promised to do in the Old Testament has happened to us, you remember that passage, right? I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules, Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. If that has happened to us, then it is completely natural that in our new nature we will behave differently. We will walk in his statutes, be careful to obey his rules. 
We'll be mindful of his glory in all things so that we may glorify him and enjoy him forever and live with him for all eternity. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead, Acts 17.31. I remember reading a story a long time ago about this little village girl who was a servant to the, one of the higher aristocrats in the village in England. And she had, through the parish ministry, had come to know the Lord and excitedly talked to the pastor about it. And he was like, yeah, you're a servant and blah, blah. Wasn't too interested at first. When he visited the house and was talking to the madame who run, whose house it was, she talked about the girl There are two giant doors leading into the main room. They had never been closed. And this girl went and she closed the doors and cleaned carefully behind them after she became a Christian. And she said, I thought that was very strange. So the the pastor asked the girl why she did that. And he says, well, nobody else cares. And I I didn't care before, but God sees all things and he sees behind that door. And I wanted to clean it so that he would be pleased. She had a new life and a new attitude that even the godless woman who ran the house saw, oh, this girl is not the girl she was before. And that's really the way it should be for us. We have a transformation of our life through the gospel that naturally and of necessity leads to us having a new life, our pursuit of holiness, our pursuit of righteousness, our pursuit of glorifying God in all things in our life. If you don't care about that, that's a problem. We should note also in verse 2 that their instructions, and really what we have in the epistles of the New Testament, along with really all of Scripture. Remember, John starts out his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, John 1.1. When we reject the Word and its true and faithful teachings, And when men teach it truthfully and faithfully and we reject them, we're really rejecting the author of the word. We're rejecting God. All scripture really is breathed out by God. To reject what it says, to say, oh, that's provincial, that's old-fashioned, that's culturally unacceptable. I have greater wisdom and greater knowledge and greater understanding, or the world does. And this worldly teacher has said these things. To say that is to say... You reject God. And that's very serious. To reject the commands of Scripture is to reject the Lord, who is the author of Scripture, and really to reject the Lord as Lord. Many despise the Bible today because it doesn't agree with culture. It doesn't agree with pseudoscience. It doesn't agree with their desires. For them, it's impossible to walk in a manner pleasing to, God, pleasing to God since they're despising what he says is pleasing to him. If you don't care about walking according to his statutes and obeying his rules and pleasing him, Paul says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For what one sows, one will reap. The one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good, but for in due season 
we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those of the household of faith. Galatians 6, 7 through 10. However, we shouldn't think those people are godless enemies and denounce them as unbelievers, as some often do. Paul concludes the second letter to the Thessalonians with these words. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary of doing good. For anyone who does not obey what we, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them, that they may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So to those who are rejecting the teachings of Scripture, they were to be warned, and you were to shun them unless they were repentant and would come back to God. Sometimes people get beyond themselves and want to start condemning and casting into hell and saying people are unbelievers. No, we're sinners who stumble, each of us, every day. We should be called to obedience, called to embrace the truth at the very least. For the rest of us, our sanctification involves us growing up in all things that we might more and more live lives pleasing to God. And this is a strong source of our assurance of faith. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor is the one who does not love his brother, 1 John 3.10. This call here, just the first two and a half verses, it is the will of God, our sanctification. It is the will of God that we become more and more holy in our life. And since he has taken out our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh, he has put his spirit within us. He has caused us to be careful to walk according to his word. If we do that, if we are living our life for God, if we are searching the scriptures, if we are excited to learn what it teaches and to do new things, to uncover new treasures in his word, then we can take a certain amount of assurance that we really do know the Lord. But if we hate what it says, if we fight against what it says, if we choose to reject it, then we really need to consider, are we rejecting the Lord? There's a wonderful passage here, a wonderful book. They're all wonderful. Uh, Many contain hard things. Uh, Certainly there's much disagreement about the eschatological section coming up. Uh, We'll get to that in due time and try to handle it with grace and wisdom. For now, though, we should remember that God has called us to walk in a manner pleasing to him. And that should be our greatest goal in this life. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, We thank you, Lord, that you have saved our souls, that you have taken out our heart of stone and give us our heart of flesh. Put your spirit within us, that we might repent of your sins, that we might have faith in what your son has done, faith in his death on the cross, and paying for our sins. We thank you, Lord, that you have done that for us, and pray that you would open our hearts and fill us with grace that we might more and more die to sin and live unto righteousness, that we might more and more seek to walk in a manner that glorifies you and pleases you. We pray this in Christ's name.
Amen.